brothers and sisters here at Mountain View, those of you who are joining us here in the room and those at home, I wonder, I wonder if you've ever done this silly thing that I do sometimes. I'll be out with other people. It always tends to be with other people. And I'll be listening to someone. It could be a supervisor, a colleague, a neighbor, a friend of a friend, maybe even a relative of mine. I'll be listening to them and I'll think, oh, no, 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 no. I do not like where this is going. How can they even, mm. I beg to differ. But being a bit conflict averse, I'll just smile and wait out the conversation, making my exit at the appropriate time. However, I don't just let it go all the time. Later on, while doing chores or driving somewhere, I'll have this lengthy internal argument with that person. And by about the time I'm waxing eloquent on my fourth point about how wrong or unfair they're being, I'll realize what I'm doing. Arguing in my head with nobody. And spending a lot of energy doing it. And at that point, I pause and I'll wonder, why am I doing this? Don't I have something more important to think about or to do? And sometimes the offender in question isn't even aware of my disagreement with them. What a foolish way to go about life, eh? This is what I was thinking about when Pastor Eric last week, preaching on self-examination in Psalm 139, asked us what it is like when someone triggers us in some way. I didn't think of any real trauma that I've experienced. For some reason, I was thinking about arguments I've had with myself over the years. Arguments where I am the triumphant hero up until the point when I realize there's nobody around to hear my heroic defense. As Pastor Eric mentioned last week, we're doing a quick little two-psalm mini-series before launching into the next longer series. He spoke last week about the psalms as poetry, and he noted that they are not like other kinds of text. And I have to say, that's why I love them so much. The psalms can do things that other kinds of text cannot through song and poetry, a writer can bottle their voice in a, time, a kind of time capsule and bring it to us clear and fresh when we open it. Yes, there are things, you will have noticed, that are lost in translation with ancient poetry. First, the translating of the psalmist's own experience into text, that is a translation. And then the many translations that will come over thousands of years as the psalm is preserved in scripture. But this is also a gift because the poem takes on its own voice once it is written. And we read that voice while also listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. And psalms, they also do other things other forms of text don't do. They're known for changes of address that make the psalmist seem to dance between audiences. For example, Psalm 4 that we're talking about today, 
moves from addressing God to addressing opponents in the community, and then back to addressing God again. Let's look at just a few more things about Psalm 4 before we dig right into the text. At first reading, we see that this is a psalm that starts with an anxious plea and then ends up with a confession of trust and peace. It's often referred to as an end-of-the-day prayer, essentially a bedtime prayer. And as such, it reads as very personal. And yet, at some point, this personal prayer became a part of Israel's communal worship. Now, we do not know for certain the exact circumstances of this psalm. It's been called a psalm of trust, a royal psalm, a prayer for rain. It's been recommended to those who are falsely accused. And it's also been suggested that it refers to idol worship or to wealthy community leaders who do not put their trust in God. The ambiguity in some of the psalms is one of the things that makes them such powerful tools for worship, even thousands of years later. This psalm can be prayed by a pastor, a mechanic, a harried second school grade teacher. It's the plaintive voice of someone, anyone, who has a beef with someone else in their community, a problem. Perhaps someone who feels judged or attacked. And we don't know the exact content of the argument, but we know that it feels very, very personal. So we're going to look at the text more closely now. In verse 1, the psalmist asks God to listen to his prayer and relieve his distress like he has in the past. Now just a note here, if you're following along in your NIV Bible, lovely, you'll notice a few differences in translation for what you see on the slides. The one that I'm referring to today is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Both of these are excellent translations. But different translations have different approaches and goals, and I prefer the NASB for poetry, like the Psalms. And if you'd like to chat more about Bible translations sometime, just ask any of the pastors on staff. We're all huge nerds, and I guarantee that you'll be thrilled, we'll be thrilled for the chance to talk about our linguistic preferences. So in verse 1, there's this lovely little metaphor that we've lost in our English translations, and I want to point it out to you today. Hebrew is an efficient language with words having multiple meanings, and this gives Hebrew poetry a real depth. When the psalmist says, you gave me relief from my distress, the word for relief carries a further meaning of ample space. And the word for distress carries a further meaning of constraint or lack of space. You know, one of the glorious things about this capacity for language that God gives us is that thousands of years in many languages after the psalmist wrote this poem, the idea that God gives us some breathing room when we're in a tight spot still works for us. This nighttime speaker of prayers feels stuck, and they need God to help them feel unstuck. In verse 2, 
we see the psalmist turn from God and point accusingly to his perceived opponents. How long, he asks, will you insult me and chase after lies? I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but you can see how widely applicable this psalm is. And the template-like nature of this psalm um, opens it up to us. It gives our hearts words when we just long to rail against somebody, not a dangerous enemy, but someone that we're just not happy with. In verse 3, the psalmist says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly, He hears me when I call. You know, I can't help but wonder how many audiences these words are pointed at. The psalmist wants his hearers to know that God hears him. But I wonder if he was really convinced that the Lord had heard his every prayer, wouldn't he just skip to praising God and go to sleep? Do you think that maybe this psalmist needs a little reassurance that God hears him and is caring for him? I mean, if he's so confident that God hears him, then why does he start verse 1 calling out, Lord, answer me? More on that later. In verse 4 and 5, he instructs his communal opponents. He says first, tremble. And this is great. This word is so versatile. Because you can tremble in fear of God or circumstances or in anger. And anger is actually the more common reference for this word in the Old Testament. And the conjunction here, the and or the but, it gives the poem even more ambiguity. So you can read this line as, Tremble before God and do not sin. Or you can read it as, tremble in your anger or in your fear, but do not sin in it. Now, I know that sometimes difficulties and differences in translation make us uneasy when we study Scripture. But I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to lean into this psalm as poetry Poetry is supposed to carry multiple meanings. It's supposed to be a dance between you, the psalm, and the Holy Spirit. Enjoy the dance. There are times when we should tremble in awe and not sin. And there are times when we might tremble in a rage but should not sin in our anger. Instead, the psalmist says, meditate in your heart. Now, the NIV translates this as, search your heart, and I love that phrase. And if you'd like more information on searching your heart, please refer to Pastor Eric's sermon last week on Psalm 139 and self-examination. Search your heart, be still, offer sacrifices, and trust, the psalmist says. And again, I wonder... Who is benefiting from these instructions? The offending colleagues? Sure, they are the main audience for the psalm. The community that is using the psalm to worship later on? Yes, it's like our own reformed liturgical elements, you know, the call to confession, the words of assurance, and God's will for us, all wrapped up into one poem. But what about the psalmist himself? 
This confessional liturgy can also transform the psalmist's own heart. As we progress through the psalm, look for signs that God is using this poetic liturgy to soften and calm the heart of the psalmist. In verse 6, the psalmist balks at the lack of faith in his community, and then he asks God to shine the light of his face on the community. And there are two things in here that I find just wild. One of those things is the tremendous list of all of the things that light of God means in the Bible. Light is one of the most common images in the Bible. Genesis kicks off with God creating light in the darkness, and Revelation wraps up with a promise at the end of time when there will be no night because God will be our constant light. You and I today here are spoiled for light. Uh, this image, I wonder if it's lost some of its relevance, some of its power for us. Ancient people, they stopped doing everything when it got dark because it was too dark to do anything. Daylight meant work and food, safety and warmth. And you may be able to just imagine what light meant to these people. If you've ever gone rough camping or boating and you refrain from using your battery-operated lights in order to conserve the batteries, what a humbling feeling it is when the modern human is no longer in control of light in their environment. And so light caused feelings of reverence in ancient people. Light stood for God's truth, grace, providence, salvation, blessing, and protection. Over a thousand years after this psalm was written, the apostle John would write, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Light is the image that seemed wholly appropriate to describe God's power and his abiding presence with his people. Now, I had said that there are two things that I find wild in verse 6. The second one is that the psalmist, when he prays for light, it's not just for himself, but for the whole community. Even though in that community there are fools who doubt God's providence, and even worse, folks who chase after lies, the psalmist asks for light for everyone. And you see, the psalmist knows that God's covenant is not based on how right his people are, how good they are, or even how penitent they are. He wants them to be right, good, and penitent, but his covenant to love them and be their God is based on his own rightness, his goodness, his long-suffering patience and loving kindness. He doesn't shine light on people who have their own illumination. He illuminates even the darkest corners. Now we're going to look at verse 7. What happened here? You have put joy in my heart, Lord, greater joy than when their new wine, when their new grain and wine abound. Many scholars, sorry, I'm going to take a moment to point out the difference. NASB and the newest NIV actually have. You've put joy in my heart more than when their new grain and wine, and wine abound. So many scholars think that this line refers to idolatry and the worship of harvest fertility gods. 
with the psalmist insisting that a relationship with the God who made the world is so much richer than any one harvest. A human of any century might paraphrase and say, you bring me greater joy than chasing after the riches of this earth. In verse 7, we see the plea in verse 1 for God to answer him, and the plea for light in verse 6 begin to be answered already. God's answer is bringing joy and peace to the psalmist as he prays this poem. And so finally, in verse 8, the psalmist is ready for bed. Time to lie down and go to sleep. And here, I want to draw your attention briefly to one fun little Hebrew word that uh, is translated as both in some translations. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. So that word for both is yada. In peace, I will yada lie down and sleep. And this word, yada, means together, united. Tell me, how often do you lie down and go to sleep together just at the same time? My Fitbit tells me that it takes me about an hour to get to sleep every night. Just eight verses ago, this psalmist was feeling so distressed. He was not going to lie down and go to sleep. He felt trapped and constrained. He begged the Lord to answer him. And now, eight verses later, he has so much peace that he's going to be out the moment his head hits the pillow. Folks, you've probably heard that many of the Psalms are accredited to David. Even the Psalms of David that he didn't write came under his purview as worship leader for his kingdom. In many of them, we hear his voice distinctly. And with others, it's a bit harder to determine authorship. It's fitting, though, that David wrote and oversaw so many psalms, not because he was appointed king by God, but because he was appointed Israel's shepherd by God. When the people of Israel wanted a strong, tall, manly king who looked the part, one like all the other kings of other nations, God gave them Saul. And curiously, when we find Saul, he's looking after donkeys, not sheep. And when that manly donkey herder of a king was stumped and terrified for 40 days because a huge Philistine giant named Goliath was challenging him and his army to a one-on-one contest, a diminutive shepherd walked into the camp and said simply, it doesn't matter how big he is. The battle is the Lord's. This was the kind of shepherd that Israel needed. One who would continually say, the battle is the Lord's. One who would, like a shepherd, keep pointing vigilantly, guiding his flock towards their God. And sometimes David would be good, and sometimes not, sometimes wise and sometimes foolhardy. In turns, he would be generous and selfish, We don't have to love every choice he made to hear his call. The battle is the Lord's. And in Psalm 4, we see the shepherd broaden this call. Not only was this the Lord's battle, but this is the Lord's community. 
Whatever beef David has with his colleagues, that argument is the Lord's. Does he have accusers? This trial is the Lord's. Does he have detractors? They are the Lord's too. Are there some in this community who doubt where goodness comes from? Everybody and everything is the Lord's. And so, it would appear, according to this shepherd and poet, our worries, our anxieties, our fears, our anger and our restless tossing and turning, it's all the Lord's. My siblings in Christ, I guarantee you that at some point in the coming months, you are going to feel greatly challenged. You will tremble in anger or fear or confusion or righteous indignation at something that someone in your community or denomination or apartment building or workplace said or did or implied. I will too. These things happen. And taking a look at the bold preaching schedule and group discussion questions for the next few months, I imagine that some of these restless nights of high emotion may even take place on a Sunday now and then. And I wonder, man, I wonder a lot. I wonder if you can, along with me, pray Psalm 4 on such evenings and remember that the conversation, the discourse, whatever hot mess you just can't let go of, it is the Lord's. Do you remember that habit I shared with you at the beginning of the sermon, arguing with myself? I guess it turns out that the only foolish thing about it was that I was only talking to myself. What's stopping me the next time I'm having one such internal dispute from taking a turn of address, such as in a Psalm of David? What's stopping me from turning to God, asking him to answer me, laying my case before him, searching my heart quietly and examining it for any unhelpful thing I need to hand over to him, asking for his light and receiving from him the kind of transformative rest that allows me to drop off in peaceful sleep the moment my head hits the pillow. What's stopping me? And he will answer us. He will bring light and peace. He did this for David. And then David instructed all of Israel to expect such a response and such a blessing from God. How much more so can those of us who live in an age when Christ sent God's own spirit so that it's poured out on all believers in abundance, how much more so can we expect God to answer us in this way, deep in our hearts with blessed assurance? And friends, if you find yourself praying through Psalm 4 and peace just eludes you, if you still feel stuck or squeezed in by life's anxieties, will you do me a favor? Call me. Or if you don't want to call me, call somebody else. Have a brother or sister pray with you and bring your struggles to God in community with one another. Because praying Psalm 4 is hard work. 
Like David, in order to hand over our anxieties and struggles and find peace, we have to walk up to the giants in our own hearts and minds and recognize that whether we are big or small or good or bad or right or wrong, this battle, argument, this contentious issue at hand, it is the Lord's and only he will have us dwell in safety. He's got this. He is light. He is safety. And he is our deep, peaceful rest. Amen. I'd love to pray with you one more time. Lord, when I say you've got this, Right now, I mean it. But will I mean it when my heart wavers, when I feel trapped and anxious, like our psalmist David did at the beginning of this poem? We as a community, Lord, can we rest in this? Say yes, Lord. Be in our hearts as we pray Psalm 4. Be, as, be in our hearts as we come to you asking for your light and for your peace. Help us, Lord, to lie down and go to sleep, yada, at the same time, your children resting peacefully. Amen.